Minister of England and said this. He said, Mr. Gladstone, I would appreciate your giving me a few minutes of your time so that I can lay before you my plans for the future. I'd like to study law. Yes, to the great statesman. What then? He said, then, sir, he said, I would like to gain entrance to the bar of England. He said, yes, young man. And what then? He said, I'd like to hope have a place in Parliament in the House of Lords. Yes. What then? Press Gladstone. He said, then I hope to do great things for Britain. Yes, young man. What then? He said, well, then I suppose I'll die. And he said, yes. And what then? The young man hesitated and then said, I've never thought any further than that, sir. And looking at the young man sternly and steadily, Gladstone said, then young man, you're a fool. Go home and think life through. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter one. We're going to be looking together in this uh, message in our series, the fourth message, uh, blueprint to joy in verses 19 through 26. And that is a foundational question. What are you living for? What are you living for? The answer to that question determines the direction of your life. And if your purpose is wrong, then your direction will be wrong. If your purpose is fuzzy or vague or unsure, then the direction of your life will be vague and unsure and fuzzy as well. And if you don't know your purpose, then guess what? You'll probably be left just to be swept up by the currents of life, trying to get grab all the pleasure you can as it goes by. But you'll learn quickly that pleasure is fleeting and it's temporal. And so what are you living for? And we're going to discover this morning that the answer to that question, both now and for eternity, can be found in one verse tucked into Philippians and the passage verses 19 through 26. So let's look this morning, Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse 19. Paul says, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's the thesis. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. Entire message is kind of going to be built on this idea that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, when we look at that, it's the thesis of this passage and all the statements surrounding it are really just supporting in nature. James Montgomery Boyce, a great theologian, said this. He said, this verse is a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. In other words, if someone came to you and said, hey, listen, I know that you profess to be a follower of Christ and kind of I'm not sure what that means. But if you could kind of sum it up and I'm going to give you one sentence or one verse to sum it up, this would not be a bad choice to, to explain it. 
There are some others that would be good ones as well. But if you just said, hey, listen, let me explain it to you this way. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, and that's all you need to know, that would be a great summary statement of what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's that big of a statement in the New Testament. And so we look through here, and the question when reading this is, is not this. It's not, uh, what, what does it say? Or, or, you know, what does it mean? Do we need to go beyond the original language and find out exactly what it's mean? Listen, it's plain English right there. It's black ink on white paper. And so the question this morning and getting a hold of this is not what does it say or what does it mean? The question we've got to answer this morning is what does that look like? Because if we don't flesh out what it looks like, then guess what? It's just a cliche. It's just one of those things we, you know, we have our own language. We call it Christianese, Right. We, we use words that no one else, no one else ever uses and, you know, bit different words and different cliches and those things. And this just becomes falls in the bucket of Christianese. It's some cliche that we say, but we don't really exactly know what that means. Well, guess what? Here's the good news. Paul's going to explain exactly to his life what that looked like and why he could make that statement. So I'm going to just frame our time together around this verse and I'm going to explain it. We're going to answer two questions this morning, very simple, very practical, two questions in fleshing this out. The first question is simply this. What does to live is Christ look like? I've heard that before. I know what it means, I think. What does exactly does it look like when I try to flesh that out and embrace this? The Apostle Paul was clear and focused on the purpose of his life. And it's the only purpose, by the way, that takes eternity into account. Because at the end of life, if your life is, I'm going to do this and this and this. And the answer question is always, and then what? And then what? And then what? Eventually, you come to the road called eternity. And so this is the only purpose statement that takes eternity into account. And so Paul's purpose is said, hey, to me, this live is Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Bible teacher in the past, wrote a book called The Life of Joy. And here's what he said about verse 21. He said that sentence is not only a statement of the apostle's true experience, but it also is a standard of judgment which confronts us with the most thorough test of our Christian faith we will ever encounter. For every person who professes Christ as Savior must grapple with the question, can I honestly say for me to live is Christ? Now, we've been talking about and preaching to this and he listen, the apostles filled with joy that the circumstances around him are totally irrelevant. He's not looking for happiness in his circumstances. He's looking for joy on the inside that's totally produced by the spirit of God. And so we, we've looked at that and since all this incredible testimony and we've been learning from it. We've been building these principles. We've been discovering the blueprint to joy. But when I was reading through this text this week, verse 19 on a cursory level, on a surface level, looks like a little statement of hypocrisy. It looks like verse 19 kind of unravels the facade of Paul's joy despite his suffering when I read it on a surface level. So for the sake of integrity of the entire book of Philippians and Paul's message of joy despite trials, let's look at verse 19 on a little deeper level so we can understand what he means by that. In verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And there will be some who are skeptical and they would say, Aha! Of course, he's full of joy. Of course, he's enduring. Of course, he's not letting his circumstances get to him. God's given him confirmation or even special revelation to know that this is temporal. And in just a short time, you're going to be delivered from this circumstance. And so listen, who can't be joyful when you know how the story turns out? Who can't press ahead when the finish line's right in front of you? 
But that's not what that means there. This passage, what he's saying there is this. So this verse here in verse 19, he says, no, this situation will turn out for my deliverance. Now, that word deliverance in the original language, it literally can be translated salvation. It's actually the same same word that's used in Job chapter 13. Uh, when Job, remember this, Job was going through a hard time. And, and who needs friends when you've got uh, enemies like Job's or I think they call themselves friends, right? They just kind of came along and said, hey, Job, your life is messed up and we all know why. And you need to get honest. There's sin in your life and it's unconfessed. And uh, Job said, you know what? I want to be saved. I want to be delivered. I want to be proved righteous before God that this trial in my life is allowed by God. But it's not because of my sin. And may God help me be faithful in the meantime. May I be delivered from hypocrisy of denying God in the severity of this trial. That's the same root word in the original language that he uses here. He says, not delivered that God's going to get me out of, out of jail. Not delivered that God's going to set me free from house arrest. Delivered from the fear of hypocrisy. Delivered from denying the gospel and bring reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. He says, through your prayers and the power of the Holy Spirit, I am going to stay faithful to Jesus Christ all the way to my trial before Caesar. So I, I don't know if he told, I, you know, I think he knew he was getting out. Look at verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. See, that, that's the same thought there. He says, I know God's going to sustain me. I know that I'm not going to have to uh, deny Christ. I know that I'm not going to forfeit my joy. Not because I'm getting out of here, because look what he says, the rest of verse 20. Not that I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, I know that, listen, I know that my testimony is going to stay intact, that I'll be delivered from forfeiting into hypocrisy. OK, so this is not some kind of thing where you, you reach and go, oh, yeah, listen, if I know how the story turns out, I've got joy as well. That's not at all what he's saying there, even though it looks like it on the surface that you dig beneath that. You realize that's not the statement at all in the original language. OK. So now that we've got that cleared up, we know that Paul's not a huge hypocrite. We can keep preaching the gospel. Amen. And so here's what he said to live as Christ. What exactly does that look like? The first thing we see here in this text is this. It means that I exalt Christ in everything that I do. In everything that I do. Now, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I'm a big fan of grace. Have you picked up on that? And I'm a radical champion against legalism. Grace transforms legalism enslaves people. But in doing that and embracing and flying the flag of grace and standing firm against legalism, there is a tendency to swing the pendulum too far the other way and say, listen, nothing on the external even matters because God knows exactly what's in my heart. What does he say about that? Look at verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation, hope that in nothing I should be ashamed. Listen to this. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. What does he mean by that? He's saying in the temporal, in this earthly tent that I'm dwelling in, Jesus Christ will be magnified by my attitudes, my actions and my behavior. He says it doesn't matter what's going on around me. There's nothing that's going to rob me of that. Now, the externals of our conduct don't provide righteousness. You got that? If you're here this morning, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you're thinking I can get my life cleaned up before I can come to Jesus. Listen, you're totally wasting your time. There's nothing externally that you can do to produce righteousness before a holy God. All right. But Jesus Christ comes in your life, forgives you your sins. You stand forgiven before the Holy Father, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Every other religion says do. Christianity says done. All right. But the externals 
My behavior, my attitude, my words, my character, my conduct, they are important. Let me tell you why. Because they are the greatest testimony of what's taking place inside of my heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says this, that the heart is the wellspring of life. And so whatever is in my heart shows up in my attitudes, my actions, my words, my conduct, my behavior. And so, so many times uh, it reveals our heart motives. And I heard people say this so many times. Well, you know, I, I don't know why I say those things. I do. I don't know why I act that way. I do. I don't know why that came out of my mouth. I do. Now, they never ask me what when I say I do, okay? But so many times we look at these and about glorifying God. And you know what we do with sinful speech and sinful attitudes? We like to sweep it under the rug called personality. Let's just see who I am. Well, listen, if who you are is sinful, you need to repent. You need to come conform to the holiness of Jesus Christ and let your life come before him with all integrity and say, God, search my heart because I don't like what's coming out of my mouth. I don't like the conduct that's being manifest through my body. And so God, search my heart and reveal to me that that sin that's going on that's being overflowed in this. And so Paul said, listen, in my life, may he be glorified in my body. I'm going to exalt, but that's all, folks. I'm going to exalt Christ in everything. <laughs> Public speaking is a breeze. And you'll be thinking this. How do you do that? I mean, listen, in the eternal economy of God, I'm a peon, right? And here the, cre- the one who, uh, creation ex nihilio, creation out of nothing, spoke the world into existence. How does my small life exalt that God? I came across in, in study this week a, a, a guy that I never would have wrote this. And so uh, when you hear this, you know that I got it out of somewhere in my study because this isn't the kind of words that I would use. But it's a great picture. Here's what he said. He said, think of him as being a distant star. It may be more brilliant than our own sun, but to the human eye, it's just a dim speck in the night sky. To many in this world, Christ is that way. He is the very splendor of God, brighter than a million suns. But the world... Doesn't see him that way. Now, now listen to this. This is a great thought. I never thought about this. Listen to what he said. He said the believer is to be a telescope to bring the truth about Christ into view for the unbeliever. Do you love that word picture? He's saying that for so many people who Christ is is so far away or, or who a clear picture of a heavenly father is, is so far away that God's up there. And yeah, he wound this thing up, and, but he just kind of let the earth play out. He's not involved in the affairs of man. He's not a personal God. He's so far away if there is a God. And he says the believer, when we live our lives, it's to live our life in such a way that when they look at our life, we serve as a telescope bringing close what Christ is like. Love that thought. And he said, especially through how we handle trials, Christ is magnified to a skeptical, unbelieving world. We talked about this last week, the power of influence. Paul's influence had, had you know, it evangelized the, the, the elite guards and they won people to Christ in Caesar's house. It strengthened, verse 14, the believers who were around him who were struggling, who lacked courage for the gospel. I don't know if I've ever told you this story or not, but I learned about courage and, and the influence that can come, the power of influence. When I was a 12-year-old boy camping out in my friend's backyard around a hibachi grill. Have you ever heard that story? Is anyone, anyone, have you heard? Yes, one, well, one has, and so I'm just, I'm just going to go on, right? People are guests like, what? Don't ask. Just don't even ask. All right. 
exalting Christ in my behavior, in my attitudes, in my words. Why? Because my life serves as a telescope to bring Christ into focus for those who think he's far away. Paul said that's what to live as Christ looks like. What else does it look like? He gives one of the description here, but he gives it multiple, multiple times. He said, exalting Christ in my life simply played out is serving others. Serving others. I remember a story, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, he had, uh, did this incredible work and they had this big national convention. He, he fell ill right before his death. And they didn't know up in time he was you know, kind of in flux of whether or not he was going to be able to come or not. And they were just waiting this, this powerful speech. They were at a critical time in that organization just to move them on. And so he was going to come and then he got sick and then he couldn't. And so just waiting on pins and needles. And so finally the time comes and they get up and it's his time to speak. And someone walks to the podium and says, I'm sorry, he's not going to be able to be here with us today. But he did send a message. And the crowd got silent. And they opened up a little folded piece of paper. On one, there was one word on that piece of paper. You know what it said? Others. That the living for Christ causes me to longer focus on myself and my needs, but causes me to live my life poured out serving other people in the name of Jesus Christ as a testimony of the gospel. Now, I'm not a great Bible scholar, but here's what I have learned. That when something is mentioned over and over and over in a passage, it's probably pretty important, okay? Okay. And so Paul just looks at this, how many times he focuses on serving others despite his trial. Look at verse 22. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. What labor? Serving the gospel, serving others, serving those he's writing to. He says, if I live, my life's going to be spent serving others. Poured out for the sake of the gospel. Verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, the whole reason God's going to keep me alive is more needful for you. Verse 26, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Oh, I mean, three times in five verses over and over. He says, hey, to live as Christ. And let me tell you what that looks like. If God in his sovereignty chooses to keep me alive, then the whole purpose of that is not for my own self-indulgence, not just me, me, me. It's to serve you. And if I can come to you again, your joy may grow in that. And so my life is to be poured out serving other people. If I'm going to truly say to live is Christ because it's denying self for the sake of others, that's the very definition of service. Now, let me tell you this morning, I love being in ministry. I cannot imagine doing anything else. I've been doing this full time for 11 years. I can't imagine doing anything else. But there are some things that I do not enjoy that come along with it. I don't enjoy giving people biblical advice. And then they completely ignore it and then come back into my office and say, oh, my life really stinks. Really? Well, here's what the word of God says about that. You should take inventory and make adjustments and live that out this week. I'm going to do that. Come back next week. How'd that go? I didn't do it. My life stinks. Really? And after the third time, I have a hard and fast rule in the the manual of counseling. I reach out and smack them in the name of Christ. And, you know, right. That's frustrating. Oh, my life is so jacked up. Well, here's what the word of God says. You should do this and make these adjustments and repentance and all those things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't enjoy that. I get really aggravated. 
And again, I've been doing this for, for over a decade now. And every church, it's been, it's been changed for the sake of growth. And, and people get stirred up about change and they, and they don't care. Well, listen, this may help us reach more people for Christ. And, and they know that's the right answer. But at their heart of hearts, they really don't care. They really want me first as, as evidenced by the fact that they're throwing a fit. Well, what if this helps us reach more people for the gospel? Well, that's all good. But what about me? I don't do well with that. All right. My first church, lots of change, unhealthy church. We had to fix a lot of stuff. And I just had a, a patent phrase after a while. We started making changes to get the church healthy again, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And I just had this pat phrase when I realized that they weren't listening. They didn't care what I said. I just had this phrase I kind of memorized and internalized and meditated on in times of struggle. And it was this. Let's see if I get it right. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. I think that's how that actually went. All right. That's in fifth John. Look it up. I don't get that. We're here to reach others for Christ. It's not about me. Let me tell you this. There's a purpose, right? I hate begging people to serve. I hate it. You see, because here's what I know, according to just this passage. I mean, just if I took this passage alone, that Paul said to live as Christ, that God keeps me alive. then the whole purpose is so that I can serve others. The whole purpose of God keeps me alive is so that I can come to you and serve you so that your joy may increase. The whole purpose of God keeps me alive despite this imprisonment and house arrest is so that I may get fruit for my labor. The whole purpose of my life is to serve others in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, knowing that's the teaching that God saves me to transform me and serve other people. Yet we have to stand up all the time and beg people. We need people to work in the nursery. You know, uh, when you when workers for a while, when you workers for a student ministry, you ask anybody on staff, do you, what, what do you not like about your job? You know, they say, I hate begging people to serve all the time. Listen, the whole reason God keeps you alive, and, and if you have a, the right perspective, is that the church allows a vehicle where I get to serve because that's part of the reason of what it looks like to live is Christ. Where do you get that from? It's all over the pages of this passage. And so Paul said to live as Christ is to pour out my life, serving other people, denying what I want to do, what's best for me. And to live as Christ looks exactly like that. And so Paul said to live as Christ. But the second question I want to look at this morning is this. What does it look like to live as Christ? Secondly, how is death gain? How is death gain? I mean, listen, when somebody dies, we don't even call it gain. We call it what? I'm sorry that you lost. So you lost someone. So how, how do we describe it as gain? Look what he says there in verse 20. It's exactly what he says for me to live as Christ. And we just flesh that out. What does that look like according to this passage? And then to die is gain. Let me walk you through some things this morning that, that it does not mean that we'll get into what it means. OK, because I think for most Christians, we, we don't have a biblical idea of what death is. We, we don't understand what, you know, how is that gain or what is all those kind of things. So let me walk you through. What it does not mean. Tonight's game does not mean that a Christian should desire death because he hates life. Paul's not having morbid thoughts here. He's not having suicidal tendencies. He's not looking at this and just saying, you know what? This is I hate my life. This is so terrible. No, actually, the contrary. What does he say in verse 18? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will choice will rejoice. Paul said, it doesn't matter what's going on around me that defines the goodness of God. It matters what's going on inside of me that defines the goodness of God in my life. And so Paul wasn't viewing life as you know, tough and, and morbid and all those things. Uh, but, but we recognize that throughout Scripture, people have gotten to that place of just total, total despair. 
Well, they'd rather God wipe them off the planet than to live in their, in their suffering. Moses in Numbers chapter 11, we see that. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 throws a pity party, sends out invitation, puts it all over Facebook, tweets about it, and nobody shows up to his pity party. He says, God, just wipe me off the planet. Jeremiah in chapter 20, Jonah in chapter 4, all low points. But God says, listen, my, my plan in your life is not pleasure. My plan in your life is a transforming work of Christ. And you can have joy despite those difficult seasons. Yes, they will come. But my goodness is not defined by what's going on around you. It's what's going on inside of you. Let me tell you what else it doesn't mean. Today's game does not mean that a Christian should not grieve over the death of loved ones. And I've preached a few funerals, a few dozen, and there have been times on occasion where someone dies and they're a believer and it's a you know, great testimony of their life in Christ. And there have been well-meaning but, but unwise Christians who have came along to a grieving, grieving family and said, stop your grieving. This is a day of rejoicing. This is a time of celebration. This is a, a time of transition and, and gave them an ill-timed rebuke that it was almost sinful that there was any grief in their hearts. Listen, Scripture compels us in Romans chapter 12 to weep with those who weep. Jesus in John chapter 11 wept with Mary and Martha at Lazarus' tomb, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He still wept with them in their time of sorrow. Now, the difference is this. As Christians, when we die, folks can grieve, but it's not apart from hope. Amen. Because we know the end of the story in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says, We grieve, but not as those who have no hope over the grave and death. Now, there's only two times in Scripture where I, that I know of where people were forbidden to grieve. Aaron's sons uh, in, in Leviticus chapter 10 offered a strange fire on the altar of sacrifice, and God struck them dead like that. And God went to Moses and, and Aaron and, and, and his surviving sons and said, Don't grieve for them. Because if you do, then people think you're on the side of sin and not on the side of the righteousness of God in this situation. There's another in Ezekiel when God uh, took Ezekiel's wife and God told Ezekiel, he said, listen, you can groan silently, but don't weep outwardly because the, the, the people think that my judgment on the nation is unjust. That's in Ezekiel chapter 24. But those are exceptions. And so it's not, not an idea that death is gained. So therefore, it's wrong to grieve. Don't, you know, those kinds of things. And so what exactly does it mean? Today's gain means this. It means that a Christian's death leads to return on investment. You know, in the business world, there's an ROI, return on investment. What is our return on investment? What's our return on investment? And can I tell you that there will come a day that despite all the sufferings of life, despite all the heartaches, despite all the persevering and faithfulness, despite when life is hard, there will come a day when you stand before the gaze of God and you won't regret an ounce of sacrifice. As a matter of fact, in that day at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll stand before the gaze of God. And the only thing you'll wish is, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have sacrificed more. I wish I would have poured more of my life into the gospel. I finally see what it's all worth. I finally realized the return on my investment. And it was worth every single ounce of effort. Death brings eternal rewards. Paul wrote later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Missionary C.T. Studd said this. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done 
for Christ will last. And so death is gained because it opens up the door and I receive eternal rewards, eternal return on investment. The dies gain also means that a Christian's death frees him from earthly labors, trials and temptations. Folks, we live in a fallen, sin cursed world. And because of that, bad things happen to good people. There are people that love Jesus Christ with their whole heart, committed to the gospel, and they can't have children. There are people that hate the gospel and stand against Jesus Christ and they have kids and put them in the garbage. I can't explain that on this side of eternity. Other than the fact that we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where people make real choices. Paul knew this. Paul, Paul had worked and suffered for the cause of Christ. For Paul to say death is gain and say, listen, all this world and its heartache. And yes, it's been suffering for Christ, but I'm finally free from this world and all this disappointment. Paul had endured one stoning, numerous beatings, several imprisonments, three shipwrecks, frequent dangers, sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. He was tired. And so he said, listen, this is a release. Time to rest from my labors. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, for I'm hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far, far better. The word depart is used of soldiers taking down their tents and moving on. Sailors in that culture use that same root word to describe a ship being loose from its moorings and setting sail for a new destination. And the death of the believer finally sets sail from this world, finally sails out from all the disappointments. And so Paul could say, hey, listen, death is gain because all the disappointments I've been laboring for Christ. It's been a joy, but it's been incredibly difficult season. Guess what? I'm setting sail. I remember reading the story of a pastor it's probably over 100 years ago, a century ago. Someone asked him this. They said, Pastor, they said, are you afraid to cross the river of death? And he smiled and said, why should I be? My father owns the land on both sides of the river. He said, it's far better to depart so to die as gain because it releases me from all the disappointment of a sin-cursed world. Now, most of us don't think that way, or if we think that way, we don't really behave that way when the time comes, do we? In our minds, the absence of life is a loss, and so how can death be gained? Revelation chapter 21 says this, describing that gain. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I've said this so many times at funerals, but it's a true statement. Some of the greatest things about heaven are not the things that are there. Some of the greatest realities about heaven are the things that are not there. What do you mean by that? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Folks, can I tell you that on that day, you will look at the gaze of God and all the things that are there and enjoy them and all the reminder of the things that are not there that were painful. And you will say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it was worth it to pour out my life for Jesus Christ. The word gain refers to profit or interest on money. And so what he's saying is there, he said, listen, in the eternal perspective, when I know Christ, we come out ahead when we're dead. Can you say that with me? We come out ahead when we're dead. That's a happy thought to go home with. Amen. So our Revelation 14, 13 says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Why? Because death is gain. 
For me to live is Christ, the die is gain. But if I live for money, then I leave it all behind. If I live for pleasure, then to die is to miss all the fun. If I live for ambition, then to die is to become insignificant. If I live for possessions, then to die is to have them all rust and fade. Theologian Alexander McLaren describes how death is gained. This is great. He said, think about it this way. He said, we lose everything we don't need. The world, the flesh and the devil. Trials, troubles, tears and fears. He said, we keep everything that matters. Our relationship with Christ, our identity and our fruit born out in eternal rewards. And we gain what we've never had before. Heaven rewards the presence of God fellowship with those who died in Christ for all of eternity. Do you get that? That when I have a biblical perspective, I'm in Jesus Christ, then death is gained because I lose everything we don't need. You keep everything that matters and you gain everything that you've never had before. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me close this morning with a question. And it's a question that you know the right answer but it's a question that you've got to push beyond the pat answer and have integrity in your heart. Here's the question. How would you complete this sentence? For me to live is blank. Now, if you just heard me talk, you know the right answer, but I'm not asking you for the right answer. I'm asking you for the honest answer. What, what, what gets you up in the morning? What floats your boat? What energizes you? What do you spend your time obsessing about? For some folks, it's a relationship with someone else. For some folks, it's their career. For some folks, it's significance. For some folks, it's reputation. For some folks, it's a hobby. For those of us who in Western Christianity, it can be possessions. And so how do we know those kind of things? And that's a real struggle for us. Ray, Ray Pritchard, great Bible teacher from the past, uh, said, read, read this quote this week. He said this, the struggle in America sometimes is living for possessions in light of perspective of the world of poverty around us. He said, uh, here's a practical way to flush that out. He said, when it comes to our possessions, we usually only ask one question. What are my possessions doing for me? He said, we also should ask, what are my possessions doing to me? It's not wrong to own nice things, but you're in a dangerous place when those things begin to own you. He said, here's some questions to find out if, if your stuff owns you. Here's what he said. He said, when you can't imagine living without it. When it's the first thing you think about in the morning and the last thing you think about at night. When you get angry at the thought of losing it. When you plan your schedule around it. When worries and concerns about it crowd out the joy in your life. You no longer own anything. It owns you at that point in time. Richard Foster said, you know, when you know deep in your soul that something you own has started to own you, give it away. Find someone who needs it and give it to them. Don't make a big deal out about it. Just give it away. You'll be free and someone else will be blessed. Give it away. Now, listen, when you start living for Christ, God may call you to do that very thing. For others living for Christ, it doesn't look like that. It looks like something totally, totally different. But I promise you this this morning, that in a me first society, in a lookout for number one culture that we live in. 
if you will live totally counterculture that on the truth of God's word and actually live your life where you can say with integrity to me for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. then guess what? No matter what happens, you'll be a winner either way. I invite you to bow your heads for prayer this morning.